Glenn Kaiser. I'm the director of the Dolby Institute, and we're here at the Dolby Cinema at the Vine. Uh, this is a um, an afternoon that we put together with AFI Fest to focus on uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, and I'm so pre- pleased to be uh, welcoming Josie Rourke to talk about the film. Thank you for welcoming me. Congratulations again. What a magnificent, magnificent, wonderful film. I definitely learned that it was uh, very difficult for a woman to stay on the Scottish throne in the 16th century. Yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, you had to have an iron grip. That, I mean, that's one of the things about the movie where you go, what she endured simply to survive that. She needs all the credit in the world. You know, historically, Mary's often been characterized. There was a kind of fake news attempt in the archives um, by Cecil, who Guy Pearce plays in the movie, where they literally rearranged documents about her to make her look like she was inadequate or actually too sexual to be able to do her job properly. So a lot of what this movie is trying to do is put that back on track and tell this true story. Too sexual to do her job properly. What <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, you know you'll have heard, actually, the woman in that scene in the church, you know, the, all the Scots in there scream, death to the whore. Although Bo Willimon was like, they say her. I'm like, yeah, it's Scotland. They have to say her. Um, but um, but the, actually, the woman who screams that is one of the most famous comedians in Scotland. But um, that 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 is that is the history of Mary that actually she is more defined by her relationships than she is by her working life as a queen. So she was much maligned and you can read some historical accounts that say that she was this femme fatale who was implicated in the murder of Darnley Mm. that put her down for that and that she was always in love with Bothwell and she just needed to blow up her husband in order that she could be with this man who she desired more. So, um, so that was a big part of that as well. Well, so with all of that, well, you, you call it fake news. I thought that was a relatively new invention, but apparently it's not. No. Uh, well, uh, politics was invented in the Renaissance as we understand it now. So that's the thing, isn't it? Right. You go actually so many ideas. So, so um, I don't know if anyone here is learned enough to have read uh, Machiavelli's The Prince. But, you know, sure. when we call something Machiavellian, that was a textbook that was written in this period, published, published secretly. People would hand that around, right. you know, in kind of fake covers to make it look like something else so they could read how to manipulate people. Well, so how did you, how do you get to the truth of what might have happened or what, you know, how important is the truth? I'm getting into a a sort of a deep end of the pool here, but I'm I'm curious about that and what what relationship that would have had to the story that you wanted to tell. So some elements of the very fine detail of history actually are not only important, but are incredibly inspiring. You know, like um, this this is um, a Dolby Atmos mix that you've heard in this theater, and that's a great way to see and to hear the scene in the movie when Rizzio is brutally slaughtered. So we had to rebuild the scene sound entirely for that scene. That is, you know, that's ADR, that's sound, that's everything. And we worked for hours and hours and hours and hours with our amazing sound team to get that exactly right. And one of the reasons that we did is that historically, and you can go if anyone's been, I don't know, to Holyrood, to um, Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh to Mary's room and you can go and stand in that room where 45 men charged into her room ripped him from her arms and brutally slaughtered him so I was saying to the the team I need 45 guys and like you won't fit them in here that's crazy what are you talking about you've never directed a film before I'm like no we've got to do that thing you know then you start to work on the sound mix just to think about this auditorium you've heard it in and you know, you're looking at incredible levels of detail where you go, let's hear all of those feet on the wooden floor. Let's hear them flock in. Let's hear that sort of awful, parasitical, terrible thing occur. And then when that knife goes to her pregnant belly, let's drop everything out. Let's have it be incredibly quiet. You know, let's, and let's, let's really build up 
all the experiences in that scene and then actually when it gets to a point of the brutality let's drop the sound of those knives away and let's just hear people's breath you know you can you can i'm i'm completely as you can probably tell romantically engaged with this medium now because you can do so much in that sense but you know that's i was going to warm you up to questions about sound but Sorry. you just leapt right in well no Please we're just chatting about it in the corridor so it's in my head <laughs> but you know but but there's there's um but th but that's incredible and actually I wouldn't have been inspired to do that scene that way had I not studied that history in detail. So it's both inspiring and incredibly important. I mean there is one scene in this film that is an imagined scene which is the scene when they meet. Which is the big meeting right which yeah. apparently never actually happened. No, no. Um, although our historian unearthed in 2010 this amazing letter that showed contrary to what people have said that Elizabeth was still seeking reconciliation with Mary right up until very close to her executing her. So it's not this kind of you know cat fight that people have been talking about for 450 years it was much more nuanced and painful than that and they needed that sisterhood because nobody else understood what it was like to be them they were the right. only women doing that job on the island at that point right. you know so there's there's, there's, lo there's lots of reasons to move away from history to do that scene but also to express history like there's a greater truth in that meeting i think and also a dramatic tradition in that meeting so mm -hmm. I have actually, I, I was thinking uh, early stay, I've directed a lot of very incredible actors who have played that scene, not in this movie, this is sure. a new scene, but in um, on screen or, you know, in a, there's a very famous German play. I just directed Janet McTeer. Do you know who Janet McTeer is? Amazing actor. You know, um, I directed her in Dangerous Liaisons and she's played in that Schiller play opposite Dame Harriet Walter playing that scene. Catherine Hepburn's played that scene. You know, I Helen just, Mirren's played that scene. Yeah. 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 So you're uh, obviously you're very well known and have had a tremendously successful career directing for the stage. And this is your first movie. Um, why this story and why now for you? Well, the why now is because this story feels incredibly now. So I hope I hope you feel that it feels very fresh, that it feels like it's history speaking directly into our present. And I think one of my responsibilities as a storyteller, actually, if we're going to see really great change that we want in the world, is to tell better versions of our history as well as better versions of our present. So that was a big motivating force and always has been in my work. Um, I think if someone calls you up and says, we've got a project with Saoirse Ronan attached to it, I would definitely recommend that you do that. Just like, just that. say yes just at that point. Just say yes, so that, that, that was it. And, you know, I, I was saying last night at AFI, gave my little introduction, that, that Saoirse has kept the faith with this film um, since she was 18 years old. She's now 24. So I came onto the project a couple of years ago, but she had wanted to tell Mary's story for a very, very long time. And that felt very, very significant to me, you know, because um, there are a lot of things that Saoirse Ronan can do and choose to do. And if she's holding that so close to her heart, then... I was very moved by that, and that gave me a mission to want to make it with her. That's great. So I wanted to um, kind of pursue this theme of you know your your stage work and this being your first film. So when you're talking about sound, you basically got your three elements: you've got dialogue, and you've got sound effects, and you've got music as your your basic elements of the of the of the sound. How are you using? I'm curious for you specifically. How are you using those three tools? separately in film than you do on stage so i could talk about this for a long time so you should just interrupt me if i um uh, go off on one but um I f firstly with music so um what i would say about this score is that um max richter is a composer is a contemporary composer not just as a great film composer that i've been obsessed with for a long time um and when i was thinking about this story 
Bo was writing the screenplay, actually we were starting to think visually about the film. Um, his music was music that I had on constantly in my house. So to be able to go to him and say, would you like to do this? And, you know, Max really only does what Max wants to do. He's a proper artist. And to have him connect with the project was huge. Um, what he does in music, I don't know if anyone has ever listened to, there's an amazing um, uh, piece of his, which is called Vivaldi Recomposed. And what he does is takes one of the most famous pieces of music ever, which is Vivaldi's Four Seasons, and pulls it apart and reconstructs it. I would recommend a listen, like it's worth a listen. And what that does with something incredibly historic, which is to be intensely faithful, but to break it apart and reassemble it in a way that allows you to see it through the lens of the present is what I wanted to do with this movie. Mm. So that, that was part of it. He also works very minimally. And although this score is very big at points, it also has actually... Well, actually, the, the orchestra we recorded with was a Wagnerian orchestra, so it was that big. So there's a lot going on symphonically, but it also has simplicity and minimalism to it right. in a way that's very helpful, I think. Yeah. So I'd say that about music. I'd also divide music into diegetic and non-diegetic. Is this getting too geeky? No, no, no. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I love that because you're, you're right. You know, you used period appropriate music that was, you know, obviously one of the main characters is is a, is a you know, a music performer. Yeah. Um, and so that... There were moments when I was like, "Am I listening to score or is this?" And then I would realize, "No, it's him playing." Yeah. So it's I love that when that line gets blurred. Yeah, and we also um, went on a mission to find um, actually the one of the greatest violinists who's working in London at the moment, who's a guy called Balinescu, who's a Romanian violinist, who again is a great artist, actually a composer himself. And he and I sat down together and spoke a lot about the character of Rizzio in Post. You know, and I. I it, the musician in the film is murdered, right? So it's sort of the, the, the kind of murder of the musician is one of the emotional points of the film that's probably most crucial. And that's, I think, the closest they come to breaking Mary right. when they murder her best friend. And I said to Balasco, look, what we really need to do is to find the character, like look at what this actor's doing, like study him with me. I'm going to tell you about his performance mm. and about what we're trying to do so that when we go into the studio and you record those riffs that you see here, or it, you know, it's off camera and on camera as well in terms of what you hear, that, that actually it, I hope, heightens your sense of what's taken away because it's very playful. You know, he's, he's improvising a lot. When we first started to try and do it, um, people were being quite respectful with it when it was on set and I was like no he'd just be messing about right. like just because it's period music musicians like mess around and could the, would, was the actor actually could he actually play he could play a little bit <laughs> <laughs> he could definitely not play the lute which is the hardest instrument to play I think right. in the world so no he's, he's, he's mainly pretending yeah yeah and so um, I just wanted to follow up through with that a little bit uh, and, and talk with you about sound effects and sound design. Yeah. And um, what, what, what role does that have in your stage work? And then how did you take those learnings and apply them to the film? So sound design in theater has become um, a bigger and bigger element over the past decade. And in fact, there's a, uh, um, it's not awards recognized sound design in all, in all of our theater awards at the moment. There's been a big campaign over the past decade well, to have people recognize. Quite controversially, they, it, they, it, it did have a Tony category and then they took it away. That's right. And yeah. then now they brought it back. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. It's a bit kind of hot debate in theater because, because of course, what, what we don't have always is the incredible investment in technology. You know, what theater's always done is kind of late adopted what cinema or music has pioneered. So, 
you know, we didn't have moving lights in theatre for quite a while. And, you know, we know they were developed for rock concerts. So when we first tried to put them into theatres, the fans in them were too loud. You know, I, I assisted Sam Mendes on a show where they were put up and taken down over the course of the preview period because they made so much noise. So we, we, we tend to be late adopters on that kind of thing. That was a play I was assisting Sam on, not a movie. Um, but, but sound design in theatre needs to work with the auditorium. And what you're trying to do in theatre always is to calibrate the room. So one of the reasons I'm capable of going on about this a lot is theatre directors, you think a lot about acoustics. Arguably, the primary job of a theatre director is to tell someone if they are loud enough. <laughs> like, we know, we talk a lot about our craft and how we get great performance and the nuance of that. But we are also essentially the person at the back going, yeah, I can't hear you from Rosette. Right. You know, <laughs> like, and that's, and, and, and in England, unlike on Broadway, we don't mic the stage. So we don't amplify actors' voices in order that big houses can hear them. You know, Simon Russell Beale, who is the guy who plays um, uh, Beale, name of the character in the movie, who reads the death warrant, is probably our greatest Shakespearean actor. And Simon can make himself heard to a thousand seats, no problem. You know, I mean, he's a very great musician as well, actually. So, so what you're doing is you're tuning the room. So you come into a room and you go, how does this resonate? How does it work acoustically? How, sorry, and again, this is too te technical. How absorbent is it? How reflective is it? Where are the kind of hot spots? How will an actor, you know, reach the top of the circle and not feel like they're shouting to the stalls? And then, then at the same time, you're working with your sound designer to try and, try and create normally from the stage coming out to the audience. Mm -hmm what the sound design for the production is. So we might put some speakers around, mm -hmm. but there's nothing as sophisticated as this. So what I can't do is play hourly with the degree of nuance. I can make kind of quite broad and expressive strokes. And often a lot of theatre sound design now, certainly in England, is actually about expressionism more than it's about naturalism, mm -hmm. you know? But, but what you can do in cinema, and why I got obsessed with this process, is that actually you can work in such detail with naturalism, it becomes expressive. Right. So, you know, you can turn the sound of those feet on the wooden floor in that murder into something that then takes on, very subtly, a quality where that whole group of men who's murdering him is like one beast. Right. You know? Right. And it, they're swarming. And you feel that. And you start to feel that. And then you push it a bit. And you see how far you can go. And I just I can't do that on stage in the same way. Yeah. But isn't it amazing how far you can push it? Oh, my God. The audience... Uh, Walter Murch talks about this, the famous film editor and sound designer, very eloquently. He says, you know, sound is the back door through which the audience takes information. And yeah. they are willing to go with you a lot farther than you think they might. Yeah. And, and you know, when we finished the mix on this, we went for a pint. Um, we were mixing at Abbey Road, which is so cool. And we went for a pint at a pub down the road. And, you know, the, the, the team there said, you know, this is quite out there, actually. Like, this is quite a, a far... You know, this is quite an ambitious and quite an expressive piece of work for them. And I was like, is it? I'm sorry. I didn't realize. <laughs> Oops. Um, but we had a great time playing with that. And I love talking to them. And, you know, it also, there's th one of my favorite bits of the sound design in the film is um, there's, that, um, there's that one take in which they play that romantic scene in the Glen. So where she kind of falls for Darnley, like he does the poem, he's sort of cute, right? But then they go for a walk and he challenges her authority and that's sort of a turn on to her, really, in a way. And um, so, so, so they walk through that glen, and then they stop, and then he steps into order, and then he takes her face. And we did this thing where we were literally going, what's, 
how how far can we push the sound of the atmosphere in this glen with all of you know the creatures of the forest so that you really feel that and that it sits in the right place underneath the score that Max wrote but actually when they stop moving and he comes towards her just as he comes to stop we drop the music out which is weird because you go this is the romantic moment you should be turning up the music then, but you should we be take swelling it away. at that point right yeah. yeah and then as he touches her face we basically turn down we go one kind of loud bird and then we turn down all of the birds in the glen because you know that moment like romantically when you suddenly feel like everything goes quiet just before you're about to kiss someone for the first time maybe this is just me is this an overshare are you gonna put this on the internet <laughs> you're gonna put this on the internet aren't you yeah okay so, <laughs> so so like how do you get that feeling and then as he moves away from her all the organic and natural sound comes back into this naturalistic place so you're working so subtly to do that and that's so thrilling to me right. that you can do that in this medium it's uh, you know this is your first film but this is a remarkably self-assured and sophisticated track and mix i you never know. get called sophisticated that's so cool <laughs> I, you know i'll i'll geek out a little bit there was some there was some beautiful moments that i know you know i think when well, a lot of people hear you know, a Dolby Atmos demo. And it's a very big, impressive sound system. And you can do lots of directional stuff and very, very big and powerful things. And obviously, you use that very effectively in the battle sequence. It's a wonderful, it's a, you know. But that's, I think, what people expect it to do. Um, there's there's that, uh, that wonderful scene uh, when uh, Donnelly first meets her and he's not sure, you know, which, which of, the, which of the, the women is, is Mary. And he's going around. And I, I realized, uh, you know, I realized that there was a sound of wind, a very subtle sound of wind in the overheads. And I thought, and I realized like th these old stone castles were really drafty and cold. Yeah, yeah. And you guys were able to actually communicate that in a really magical way using using this very directional sound system. And probably most people are not really aware of that. No, that that's right. And, and you know, another example of that, which I, I just, loved was um, in that um, incredibly brutal sex scene when he impregnates her. Um, the first offer that the team made on that was the wind was whistling outside and, you know, there was stuff rumbling and it felt like, you know, there was something sort of uh, melodramatic was going on. And I said, actually, I now understand what we can do with, with this mix. Just, just stop. Just have it be incredibly mundane. Like, can it just softly rain? Like, let's just remind people that actually this is a domestic act of violence, not an epic one, even right. though it results in, in the, you know, the uh, creation of James I of England and Scotland. Like, right. just let it be regular, boring rain outside. And we did that with every scene. We were like, what's the weather like today when we looked at every interior? And that was really <laughs> cool. That's great. But there's, uh, there's just remarkably subtle stuff. I'm, I'm also thinking you, you also have a really great use of, of dynamic range. And you mentioned it in passing just a few moments yeah. ago with silence. Yeah. There's a sequence, and I I'm, I'm apologize, I don't know, I, don't, I, I didn't make note of the character's name, but her, guard, her, her captive guard that she marries subsequently after. Yeah, yes, uh, Lord Bothwell. Yeah. The scene where he, you know, uh, yeah. basically r rapes her. Um, and you, you go in for those tight close-ups and you took the sound almost completely out. It's completely gone. And it's you're just looking at their eyes. Yeah. And you're not even hearing their breath. It's and it was such an eerie moment. It was just beautiful. And that's it's it's just fantastic design. Yeah, and we, we, we didn't get there until the very end of our process with that. So we all had an instinct to do it. And we kept trying stuff like we had a sort of high tone and and it actually wasn't until we'd done pretty much everything else in the movie, you know, and we sort of got to the point of kind of real checking, really, with it, that 
we were just like, let's do it. Like we dared ourselves to do it. And we took it out and actually we watched it in context. So I think that's also what you're saying, that we watched it in context of everything else we'd done. And we were like, yeah, that holds. Their acting is so incredible. We can dare to do that thing. And again, the only other place really that that happens is it goes incredibly quiet, not fully quiet, just before the movie ends with that breath that then takes into silence with those cards. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic work. And, 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 And obviously you also, you know, you have a lot of great production design that I yeah. think opened up a lot of fantastic possibilities for sound. You know, these Im- immense stone rooms just give you so much possibility for. There was that great moment uh, with Elizabeth when she finally loses patience with her, you know, her privy court, and she she stand, you know, she stands up, and then all of the chairs scrape on the stone floor, and it was just a beautiful, really powerful sound moment there. Yeah, it's a cool sound, that isn't it? And it's actually kind of. Um, uh, Sort of weirdly, I love that because that's a sound that you know from school. Do you know what I mean? Like that's like that's a sound, isn't that right? Like the bell goes and all the class goes ah like that. Yeah. Um, and sorry, I am I am also like I drive them crazy because I think that I can foley stuff. So I am that annoying director who's there in the mix. So you know, I kind of ah sound and like Josie, just just stop. Use your words, please stop. <laughs> um, oh, but yeah. yeah, and that that room is in the Bodleian Library in Oxford University. That is a six hundred year old stone room. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. So I'm a little curious about your process, um, and obviously you were you were sort of you know learning as you were as you were doing this, and and you obviously it's worked a with very the, expensive film school. Yeah. Well, if somebody else is going to pay for it, why not? So um, you know, uh, I, I, directors handle sound in different ways. There are some directors who you know I've worked with directors who come every third day of the f- of the mix for a playback and give notes and they take off and then there are other directors who are on stage every moment of every day how did you engage with your sound team and 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 how did you establish that relationship with them and tell them what you needed and sort of guide them through the process yeah so i mean i th- i think that um that for me probably was one of the bits of the process that came most readily from theater because specifically we think about the spoken word so much and for us, so much information, even visual information, travels through the poetry of the spoken word. Obviously, theatre is a highly visual medium, but um, it's also a highly verbal one. So um, one of the things for me was to be... Cons- and, and also, the other thing about this movie is, just thinking about this in terms of dialogue, is that there's, um, there are five languages spoken in this film. Um, and, you know, that's... Uh, and, and there are, I would say... <laughs> there's a funny thing like the, the English are speaking with what we call an RP accent so that's one we're most familiar with because that's our kind of sort of you know BBC accent to an extent that's changing but there's a the Scottish accent as well mm-hmm. so how we're dealing with that and also just that checking in going do we think we have it do we think we have the clarity and that's a very sensitive thing as well because what you don't want an actor to feel is that you know actors hate doing ADR like they hate it and I actually I understand why like because there's something slightly cruel about an ADR session where you don't soften them up at the beginning you kind of they come in you stick a pair of cans on them you go go like that right. which is not what they're used to at all and they made it ages ago and they can see themselves and 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 <laughs> you know and all of that so 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 just just learning where to find the sensitivity around performance and capture in that process and gu- actually guiding people through the ADR process and that was that was really cool and actually they're the ADR team was saying that they were enjoying it because I was using a lot of my theatre director 
skills in the ADR sessions. So what we're quite good at is targeting very specifically with a note. So if you need a particular thing on one line, like in theory, I've got the skill to be able to go, here's the thing you need in your head to be able to do that. So that was that was good fun. I, I hate to break it to you, but most directors hate ADR so much. I've actually worked with a number of directors who don't even come to the ADR. Don't they? It's it's shocking. Yeah, it's some, sometimes the poor actors are just left on their own to revoice their lines. How do they? I don't understand that. I I, I don't know. It's it's a it's it's a, I don't think it's the best way of working. Certainly. Um, at what point did this become a Dolby Atmos mix? Was that always part of the concept for the sound from the beginning? Um, yeah, quite 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 early on. So I I found out about it and. Um, uh, I went to see what I can see. I think I went to see uh, uh, not the most recent Star Wars, the one before that. That was the one that was running. And there's a really nice cinema opened up, uh, a Picture House Central, uh, which is just a great cinema and it's got a Dolby Atmos in. So I went in and was really impressed. So yeah, I was like, can we use it? Uh, let's open up and take some questions from the audience. Does anybody have uh, any questions for Josie? Yeah. yeah. So for the so just for the sake of the video, the question was about uh, you know obviously you'd done a lot of work with Sam Mendes. Was he a mentor to you in this process, and and how did that uh, your sort of transition into the film uh, medium? So um, Sam has been a, a career long mentor to me. So I um, I run a theatre called the Donmar Warehouse in London, which uh, Sam founded in its modern incarnation, and in the year two thousand. Uh, I was appointed Sam's assistant director on a scheme that we have. Uh, we have a resident assistant director scheme where um, we get someone who's at the beginning of their career and they come and spend 12 months and assist all of the directors, but also work closely with the artistic director uh, to understand what that role is. And um, I was that person for Sam uh, for 2003, 2001. And then Sam gave me my first professional theatre gig, which is on the Doma Warehouse stage. So. Um, Sam's always been a mentor and an inspiration and yeah we definitely chatted about this I also um, so that was 2000 so he actually um, I remember I'd been working at the Donmar two weeks when he uh, won the Oscar and thanked everyone working at the Donmar warehouse um, and I was like I've been here a fortnight that's me <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah that that's always been a part of it and you know I, I'm sure it's the case here in this city but you know, the, the theatre in London and the London theatre community is incredibly great and generous at mentoring and people give back a lot and see that as part of their role um, because, you know, they really care about the craft of theatre and I think what I felt with a number of directors, Phila Deloyd, um, who directed Iron Lady, is um, one of our associate directors at the Donmar, so she was really, really helpful um, at steering me through and there are a number of people, yeah. Great. Other questions? Uh, yeah, right. Uh, you uh, right behind the camera. You no, know, the yeah. question was: uh, there's there's a lot of diversity in the cast, and also a very progressive attitude about homosexuality in the in the film. And and is there a historical basis for that, or was that uh, sort of you know um, uh, kind of a, an imagining of what could have been? So, in terms of the diversity in the cast and the amazing um, actors of color in there, I said to focus and to working title at the very beginning of this process and they were very supportive of this that I would not make a period drama with an all white cast. So, you know, um, that's that's really that. Um, uh, your, your question about sexuality is actually a really interesting question and tells us, a bit like I was saying before, 
as much about the present as I think it does about the past, a bit like the movie. So um, it is a misconception that people were not tolerant of what we now call homosexuality and bisexuality in the Renaissance. Um, so there were hardly any prosecutions for homosexuality during that period. It was not illegal. What was illegal was, um, sorry, I'm gonna go deep into this. What was illegal was sodomy. Um, and in the film, someone called, well, Lennox, Darnley's father calls him a sodomite. Calls his own son a sodomite, yeah. yeah. However, there were very few prosecutions for sodomy. And if they got you for sodomy, they were sort of trying to get you for something else. It's a bit like getting Al Capone for tax. <laughs> you know, that was that was sort of the view of it. And, and of course, um, this is the period in which William Shakespeare was writing. You know, most academics think that he wrote his sonnets to a man, not to a woman. Those, some of the greatest love poems ever written. Um, it seems to me this is a really important moment in our history to remember that progress is not linear, mm. that it is possible to go backwards as much as it is to go forwards. So it's a really great, great question, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to say, actually, you know, yes, there was what we would think of as more tolerance then. Also, we know that Darnley was bisexual. We know that he had a relationship with Rizzio. Um, we know that Rizzio was most probably gay, and that's, you know, factually recorded. They actually called him, in the court of Mary Queen of Scots, Lord Henry Darnley, the great cock chick, if that wow. gives you an indication of what people <laughs> thought about his sexual proclivities. Fantastic. More questions? Yeah, right here. So it's a question about your transition from stage directing to film directing and, and what came easiest to you and what was the biggest challenge and how did you prepare yourself? Okay, so as we were saying before, I had these amazing mentors and actually Walter Murch's book was something that I read and reread a lot through um, the process. Um, I'm going to say something that might come across the wrong way. Um, there is a surprising amount on YouTube, <laughs> like if you want to direct a movie. Like there's, 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 a, there's a lot there. I mean, I'm serious. And it's, uh, it's amazingly true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like amazing director's commentaries, like just really great, simple breaking down tutorial stuff and how things work. So I spent, I was running my theater, but I spent most of my weekends watching YouTube videos um, for quite a while, just, you know, um, and actually, you know, stuff like this like we're doing now which is listen to a director talk about their filmmaking and and how that worked like i found that intensely valuable and then doing that and then re-watching films i did that sure. thing that people tell you to do which is to watch a movie with a sound off probably sacrilegious in here but to think about the camera yeah yeah it, no it's just it's about shifting your focus and paying attention to yeah. to different aspects what what's um uh how's it how, what's what's different about working with actors directing actors for stage versus film so did you? I'm, I would imagine in, in in theater you have a very lengthy rehearsal process. Did you did you use that on on in in the film as well? Yeah, we had two weeks rehearsal, um, which was you know um, something actually that working title understood from the start would be a part of my process, and I think that one of the things that they really valued and were excited about is I hope my ability as a theater director to help people to great performances. And what's true about this story? is that the majority of the leading characters are incredibly young. Mm. So they're, they're in their 20s, most of those actors, which is remarkable if you think about the complexity of what they're playing. And there is a thing I found, one of the things that an actor requires with experience is actually knowing um, 
this is very specific, knowing how to wear clothes. Mm. So like I've worked with Judy Dench and Helen Mirren and 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 acts like that. And and the thing that those women know how to do is how to wear a dress and not have the dress wear them. Hmm. You know, Janet Matera is unbelievable at that to talk about. Sure, yeah. And you just, although you do a bit of that as you train, an actor is not necessarily taught that. So you can be thrown into the Renaissance and you've never acted in that period before in your life, you know. So I work very specifically in rehearsal, both with myself as a theatre director, but also an amazing choreographer called Wayne McGregor, who is a resident choreographer at the Royal Ballet and actually works in all the Harry Potter films and is amazing at putting an actor into their body and also getting them to not fear their clothes and fear the period and work out how to be natural. So for example, Saoirse really wanted to work out how she could do what I'm doing now, which is to be asymmetrical in a very formal gown. Mm. Like, can, can I cross my legs? Can I lean like this? Can I do that? You know, whereas Mar Margot, you'll see is incredibly, and this is sort of aesthetic choice, presentational. Mm. You know, it's very symmetrical, everything. So, you know, think techniques like that, just sort of understanding how to do that and open up that language. That was a big part of it. And, and then also for me, you know, the close-up. There are a lot of close-ups in this movie and that I think partly is because you spend your life as a theatre director in a rehearsal room and you see things in a rehearsal room like I'm here, you're there, you know, I'm closer sometimes. You do a piece of acting and I know that what you just did, what came across your face, I could not show to this room. Like I have to work out right. how to translate that so that a whole room can feel it. Whereas I've got a camera I can just show it to the world so I feel like for me it's like a gift of 10 years 15 years in the theater seeing this stuff that I can now show people that's a great way of expressing it I, I sense a certain amount of excitement on your part I feel like you might make more films hope so <laughs> <laughs> any more questions yeah right here sorry you were over in the corner you also I think in that amazing hair and makeup in that moment feel so you have two things don't you, you have this tingling feeling because you start to recognize Elizabeth the first as right, she's generally the iconic presented. images right. the beginning of that thing but the the other thing that you see I think speaking as a woman is how um, makeup is sometimes a key to the amount of vulnerability that you're feeling so the mask of that thing or just on a really basic level i am very jet lagged and i'm wearing a lot of cover-up i mean i actually you know like and, and actually it's because i want to go and come and say hi and not look like i'm tired and all of those things but you know so, so what you feel after she has the pox is also her huge humanity in that like how we try and make ourselves feel strong enough to walk into big moments in our life and i think jenny shercoy did the uh, makeup really loves that. Can I have you one takeaway, which is just so cool if you've seen the movie, which is that apart from the final three looks when Elizabeth is coming down the corridor at the end of the film, all of the costumes are made of denim. Denim? Yeah. And is that, was that historical? Historic? Yeah. You did that, you did that, you did that for sound so that you didn't, the costumes were not too loud. I don't know, why, why, <laughs> well, why denim? Well, it was very helpful. Oh my, like those scenes in the beds, which is like being trapped in a drapery department, um, but in the sound mix, I'm like, oh. uh, and it's really annoying because you've recorded these really intimate scenes and then you have to ADR them because like you can hear, I know, okay, well, I learned something there. But um, so, so, um, it's a number of reasons. So you've got in Alex Byrne, who designed the costumes, this artist who is incredibly confident in the Renaissance. She obviously designed the Elizabeth Kate Blanchett film, so she knows this time. That's what with Kenneth Branagh a lot. Um, she has the confidence to be able to go, and she's quite like a sound thing. Um, uh, here's one um, 
one dynamic range that we're going to fix. Like here's one thing that we're going to do that will give us unity so that creativity comes in other places. So you have enormous control of the palette and also actually, yes, in sound terms, enormous control of how that fabric moves because you have one fabric that's moving a certain way. So when you come down that corridor as Elizabeth and see that Mexican wave of men, actually there's something about the fact that they're all in that same fabric that gives you a bit that feeling of that sea of bodies. That's really cool. Um, the other thing is, um, so men, again, to go back to how actors feel, like it's really hard to act in, in tights, as we were saying in England, in like stockings. And this period was all about the male legs. So historically, accurately, they would have been wearing actually like, like little sort of micro minis and their legs would have been. And you'll have seen that in movies, right? And it's just really hard. Like not all men, sorry, men have great legs. You know, so we didn't want to expose them. Like they wanted them to feel strong and confident. So that was a good way to do that. That's fantastic. Well, Josie, thank you so much for thank taking you. the time to thank talk to us about much. the film. Lovely to meet you all. Thanks. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, everyone. Uh, the movie comes out December seventh. December seventh in the U.S. Uh, please tell all of your friends and go see it again. Thank you. <laughs>